this is an IMA podcast. The Institute of Modern Art is a contemporary art space in Brisbane, Australia. Since 1975, we have been presenting cutting-edge visual arts through our annual program of exhibitions, public programs, publications, and off-site initiatives by local, national, and international artists. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land where the IMA now stands, the land of the Yuggera and Turrbal people. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Hi, I'm Melanie Saywood, I'm a bigger bull and waka waka woman. And before I begin, I'd like to start by acknowledging the First Nations owners of the lands that we're on today, the Darug and Gundam. Sorry, keep going Darug and Gundungara because I was just reading my piece about the Yuggera and Terrible peoples and pay my respects to their elders past and present. Um, and I'd like to thank the IMA for inviting me to be here and to Daniel Boyd for letting me be a part of his beautiful exhibition and his work and being invited to consider artwork so deeply. It's a, it feels like a real privilege, especially when I'm the sort of person that used to say up until really recently, I don't know how to engage with artwork. I don't understand that my sister is the visual artist in our family and just it feels like a nice rounding off to a year that I've had where I've been invited into a lot of visual art spaces starting with um, Meet the Artist over at SLQ earlier in the year where um, I was given the chance to actually walk through with people like Auntie and Foley and look at some of their work and speak to them and hear about their process and that was what made me go oh actually I can really engage with this work especially when it comes from Bob so yeah it feels really important to be here and, and nice to round out the journey that's my least favorite word in the world uh, but round out that and become a real visual art enthusiast in, in just a year's time really. So because it's just me and I've got a fair bit of time, although I'm not going to bore you because there's only a few of you here, I'm going to read a few extracts um, today from already published work and it's because engaging with Dan's work, particularly four themes of identity, memory, perception and history, it really resonated with me, particularly when I came through this space and then when I sat down to think about it. I've called what I want to do today small stories for a few reasons. One is because the way of the way in which every dot in this space and in the whole exhibition really gives you uh, a new entry point to perceive the work. Um, and that you can start looking at something in one way and shift your, shift your gaze slightly, change your perspective and the picture changes. And that is really um, obvious with things in the first gallery and then in these rooms as well. Uh, and I was really fascinated with how our perspective changes based on where we come to a small story from. So when I sat down to work on my new work, the response to Dan's work, a piece that I have so far called the Sacred Kingfisher. I found that I was looking over parts of my life and my own story with a slightly shifted viewpoint. I would have simply shared that new work today, but I found that um, the 
pieces that I had already written um, have overlap. And I didn't do it on purpose. Most of them are non-fiction with the exception of one, and they're all written at different points in my life. They all surround certain events, whether it's different time periods or different phases of looking at something like the different stages of grief, which I think you'll see as one of the overarching themes in this work. So when I first visited the exhibition, I kept thinking about the portrait of Dan and his mum that's in gallery two, so I was just out there in that space. And in a way, uh, the way in which the old people in the reworked portraits um, are looking at him or facing him and his mum. The rooms sheet talks about the way Dan has reworked the pictures so that they can exist outside of an anthropological gaze. And while it's not strictly the same thing, when I started working with um, Jolly writer Ellen Van Neven in a workshop for First Nations writers that was run by them and also Varuna, the National Writers' House, which is on Dharagi Dandangara, which is why I almost did acknowledgement of their country. Um, they taught me the values of putting my words on the page in a way that doesn't necessarily cater to the Western ideas of what writing should be. So as part of that workshop, I started a series of work where I was playing around with tense and with time, with structure and form and making it in a way that was closer to what um, is maybe a blackfellow way of seeing the world. In some spaces, it's made it really difficult to get work published. It also means that even when pieces are accepted, that I often have to work with non-Indigenous editors to get the work ready for publication, which means that I have to explain the concepts to them about why they can't change things, such as tense, because of the way it's written. So I do have a piece that was written as part of that workshop that is being published next year, but nothing's been announced, so I'm not allowed to share it yet. Um, so instead, what I want to do is start with a piece that is from that workshop that is, unyet, uh, it is as yet unpublished because I'm still working through it and also getting permissions because it, um, it's about my family and I'm really, um, especially my niece and my nephew, so I'm going to talk about them a little bit today and um, yeah, it, it's like inviting you into those spaces um, while I'm trying to work them out. Um, so this is actually called Little Stories and it's based on a quote from Alexis's right, Alexis Wright's tracker um, where she says, Sometimes it is the little stories that people tell that are the most potent. And so nearly everything I'm going to give to you today is like a vignette, with the exception of a couple of extracts from published stuff. For a while now, I've been consumed with writing about my family, but I've realised that I've been selfish. I write about the people I care about the most in relation to me and who I am. I pass this off as an excuse. I should not write about other people's experiences. I do not want to upset my family, so if I take things and fictionalise them or unpack them from my own point of view, then I won't do that. On the phone the other week, my nan told me some stories about her childhood. I love catching nan when she feels like talking about the past because she is the direct connection back to culture. But her stories are often muddled 
age has led to the things she was told to protect her into truth. And I sometimes say the wrong thing and make her angry. But when I manage to just shut up and let her talk, she gives me the best stuff. You've had such an interesting life, Nana, I said. I probably should have written it all down, she replied, but it's too late now, I suppose. I think, Nan, I said, looking at the notes I'd scribbled while we've been talking, that that might be my job. Two, Anne-Marie. To me, Anne-Marie is mum. If I was writing about mum in relation to me, I would talk about how when I was a preteen, there was an article in Dolly that said something along the lines of, all those girls who claim their mums are their best friends are liars. I read this and I got mad. My mum knew everything about me. There was nothing I wouldn't tell her. But maybe the magazine was right because being someone's best friend is supposed to be reciprocal and I knew nothing about her. At the time, she was quietly going through something terrible and I would have no idea until many years later. But this little story isn't about mum and me, this is about Anne-Marie. I ask her, what's a story you wish I knew? And on the other end of the phone, she sighs. It takes us a while to get there and I explain what I'm writing, rephrase my question, and then all of a sudden it must click because she takes a deep breath and starts with the Land Rover. It had a troop carrier, seats on the side and the back, and I'm sure it was yellow with a white roof and we used to go for drives. On this one drive, she can remember the girls from next door were with them, but she can't remember if her little brother Warren and all the other kids were there. She says names of people I don't know. Lil, Linda, Teeny, Tina, and Rayleigh. I write them all down because they might be important and this is her story. We drove down a gravel track and into the bush and eventually we came out into this huge paddock that was covered in daffodils. She doesn't tell stories the way I do, but it doesn't matter. I can imagine the troop carrier bumping along over a gravel track throughout the northwest Tasmanian bush. I can almost hear the kids draw breath as the trees give way to a field of yellow and orange, and I can smell the sweet perfume of flowers. We picked buckets and buckets of daffodils, and Marie says, but that's all I remember. And I've asked Dad about it, but it's getting too late to get him to remember where that was and why we went and who was with us. She tells me about another drive, a picnic while her dad and Pop fished. The spot was special, but I actually want to save that for another story. She talks about the drive-in, about her and her sister Michelle dressed in their pyjamas and Warren in the cane baby basket in the back. She remembers they had a kids club and on your birthday they'd read your name out over a loudspeaker to call you to the shop for a present. She remembers it was a yellow box of licorice that had a picture of a man made out of the same licorice who had, quote, big goggly eyes. There's a story about starting a band with the Williams girls and her mum's gold lame swimsuit as their uniform, about singing Happy Wanderer as they traced up Stoport Hill together, dreaming of being in a band. And then she talks about her pop, her voice changing. She has been going deeper and deeper into her memories, telling me things I was surprised I didn't know, like how her pop had lived with them. When he moved out, Michelle and I were going to move into his room, and I can remember going in and putting something on the dresser, 
cop came in and said, you could have waited till I'd finished moving out to put your things in here. I wish he'd never moved. Why? I asked. Because I loved him. One last story from that piece. It's called Wally. Wally, my maternal grandfather, died five days ago. I am ashamed that we didn't spend more time talking about his life and memories. I am ashamed that when I interviewed Mum for this story, we made a plan for me to interview Pop and on Christmas, on Christmas Eve, but instead of huddling next to him while the kids played with their presents and the adults chatted, he looked me in the eye and said the last words he would ever say to me and they broke my heart. I am ashamed that I can't tell this small story in Molly's words because I was too late. On the day before he died, I sat with him in his hospital room and he held my hand while I talked. He slept while I told him about the first time I remember meeting him. I was about four or five and mum warned me not to suck my thumb because Poppy would cut it off with a big knife. And she said if I put my elbows on the table at dinner time, he would whack me with his fork. And so I was terrified. I tell him this in the hospital room or he is dying. And as soon as the words come out of my mouth, I realise it's probably not the best story to tell. I came to know him as someone who was firm and gruff and liked things done in a certain way, that he was gentle and loving, devoted and kind. That was true, he hated elbows on the table and was fond of brandishing a huge kitchen knife that he called Mother. He would also give you the shirt off his back if he asked for it. That is, of course, if he was wearing one. He didn't have much to say. Instead, at big family, family gatherings, he would go to the back of the room and find a book or hide in the car. I don't think he was a fan of being the centre of attention, but he knew that Nan loved a party and he would do anything for Nan. Pop and I didn't like each other very much when Mum, Dad, my sister and I first moved to Queensland. In the interest of centering myself, of being a mostly unbiased journalist, I can report that I was a properly shitty teenager. I hated everyone and everything and Pop hated that I kept tying up the phone line to talk to my friends back home. Pop cops some of the worst of my teenage ire. I got a job at the local burger joint and bought a cordless plug-in phone and waited until he went to bed at night to dial my friends. One month he would leave a highlighted copy of the bill next on my bed and we would fight over who made each call. You still have family in Tassie too, you know, and I'm not paying for your calls. After we moved out, I wasn't really sure I loved Pop because of how much I'd hated living with him. But then a few years later, he'd had a bypass surgery. My parents took us to the hospital to visit him. Two at a time, we went to his bedside to talk to him and the sight of my pop, who I was used to drinking beer and driving me nuts with his country music, looking diminished and small in a hospital bed connected to wires and tubes made my head spin and I nearly passed out. And that's when I knew for sure that I loved him. I love that when they released him from hospital, they had to tell him he shouldn't climb on the roof of their house. When I told mum this memory, we both laughed at the image of him clambering barefoot up an ancient old ladder, wearing only a faded grey pair of stubby shorts to gurney the roof of their two-storey house. 
Once when I went to visit him after he'd had a health scare, I cried, not because I was scared he would die, but because the sight of him and Nan holding hands across the living room showed me just how devoted the two of them were to each other. So that's a little bit from my small stories and about two of my family members. So it was important to me to start there because the theme, one of the themes in here is identity and I draw my identity from my family but also I spent a lot of time in the last couple of years reconciling this idea that I'm actually not going to become a mum to my own children. So I have a focus on where I've come from and where our line is going and what the people left will be thinking of us and of course my maternal grandfather passed while I was writing that piece. Um, and then I recently had a piece, it's actually just coming out in the most fresh review, edition of the Griffith Review, um, where I move on a little bit because I was still dealing with the loss of the, my maternal grandfather who died last year, um, while at the same time, my paternal grandfather was passing away. Um, and I'm really sorry about how heavy all of this is. It does get a little bit lighter, I think. Um, so this is an essay that's also written in VDF forms and it's called When the Birds Scream. And I just have a really short piece to read from that, which is about my other grandfather. The birds talk to me that I don't know what they're saying is a legacy of colonisation and disconnection, but often it's just enough that they come to me. When I lost my baby, it was the kookaburras who brought with them a calm, knowing presence. Magpies introduced me to their children and made me smile with their songs. Lorikeets dart around the yard, splashing everything with colour and sound. Peewees sit at my back door and beg for food. Crows chatter from the cow holes. And every so often, a cockatoo flies overhead, its screeching announcing its presence. As I write this, the birds are visiting. First, a peewee sits on my back veranda and makes eye contact, eye contact as I type. Next, the lorikeets come to feed on the bread roll I scattered in the backyard this morning. The crow couple come next and they sit on the back fence and alternate between watching me and grooming each other. Their affection fills me with warmth. It's as though they're allowing me into their world. I've lived in my house for four years and the crows have always been present, but they keep their distance. My dad says there's this one whose voice sounds like it's saying, I know, I know, I know, over and over. They prefer to mind their own business from high above the neighborhood. But on the morning my cop died, I opened my bedroom blinds to find one of them sitting on the back of my patio furniture so close that if the window hadn't divided us, I could have touched their beak with my nose. When Pop died, everyone talked about how Nan was waiting for him to arrive. When I got home from the funeral, the crow brought her mate to my backyard for the first time. We're friends now, the crow and me. When I told her Pop had gone to be with Nan, her eyes locked on me. I know, I know, I know, she said. Um, so this, this piece was really important to me to work through a fair bit of grief, as you can see, but, um, and also identity. So 
I'm going to now read you the piece that I have written as response to uh, Dan's work. And I do talk a little bit about um, specific things in the exhibition, um, but it all ties into these ideas of identity and looking at things from different perspectives. And I think you'll see some of the things that I've talked about in the other pieces come into here. I hope you will. I hope I've made it work. So it's currently called Sacred Kingfisher, which is why I have the Kingfisher jumpsuit on. <laughs> um, and it's after Rainbow Serpent version. Sacred Kingfisher watches. That's not his real name, but it's been a long time since he was named proper way. Yesterday, when he had people legs and walked, when his voice was more like theirs, his name was Harold, but also Bundy. And sometimes when he's busy at work in the termite nest, he hears his great-granddaughter call that name and it strikes something within. The trees where she lives are small, new growth that he watches her nurture from his perch on the dead tree. His heart swells when he sees the yellow grevillea reach out its young branches in the breath of the wind and caress her face. And his body warms when he sees her respond. She can't hear the whispered words of love from that old one tree as it brushes softly against her skin, but he can see she is listening and her heart is open. I think that tree is dead, Dad says, standing in front of the French doors looking out at the backyard. I bring him his coffee and once he's taking a hot mug from him, I follow his gaze out across the rooftops to the tall tree that's at least a block away. When I first moved here in the summer, it was alive with yellow flowers, alive with yellow flowers that caught in the wind and flooded down into my yard like confetti. The pollen caught in Archie's whiskers and he dragged it inside on his fur. It made him sneeze, huge body-shaking sneezes that were almost so well-timed that they came as soon as he was on my lap having a cuddle, meaning my face would be sprayed with glops of doggy spit and snot. Actually, do dogs snot? Mum comes to the window too and shakes her head. Nah, it's winter. It's just lost its leaves for the season. It makes me think that the tree is not a native one then, and I glance up at it and then down at my empty yard. The grass is patchy and dry, sprinkled with weeds that I don't want to fight, knowing I'll be gardening and landscaping one day when I've got the money but also knowing that if I don't wage war against the weeds, Archie will come inside covered in more than yellow pollen that makes him sneeze. I'll have to spend hours picking sticky, thorny bindies from his paws. And worse than that, it'll be more trips to the vet for more expensive, itchy ointments and creams and treatments to soothe his sensitive skin. All these thoughts pass through my head while I stand shoulder to shoulder with my parents, looking at a tree that may or may not be dead, that may or may not belong here. All these thoughts are passing while inside me, sperm has met egg and cells are dividing. The first signs of life are starting inside my belly and no one knows. Kookaburra and sacred kingfisher are related now. She came to this future after him and her walking self, which was called Muriel, met the great-granddaughter when she was a Jarjan. They are not together in this bird life, but close enough that he can call her. 
She has heard the lie starting inside great-granddaughter and was waiting for it when it arrived here. She was there in this place when it hatched from an egg in a nest built in a termite mound on Bachelor Country. The new life does not miss the walking life. It did not have because it was only ever meant to be here, to be another kookaburra, to be the kookaburra daughter. Why do you not have kids? Nephew's eyes are clear and blue, and though the words poke at the wound of my heart, he is innocent and just wants to know. He is sorting out his family, what it looks like. I have pink hair and a house full of toys, but no kids. I wonder if it was easier to understand when Archie was still around. Auntie Mel goes with Archie. Archie is Auntie Mel's. It was easier for me to understand when I had Archie, and it was easier for me to answer a few months ago when I was still entertaining the idea of trying again. But my body hurts, and I am tired, and I am trying to convince myself that this is the way it was always meant to be for me. Last week, Dad pointed out that the tree, the tall one that used to flower in the spring, is actually dead. Last week, I told my nephew that I don't have kids because it wasn't meant to be, and he wrapped his little arms around me and hugged me with such love that the grief calmed down a bit. Just a bit. Just for a minute. Is this autofiction, fiction, non-fiction, or poetry? Is this story real or made up? I don't know. I just know that I feel the presence of this sacred kingfisher and know he's there. I ache to see him and know he's seeing me. I see both the kookaburras and my heart always soars when they are there. If I hadn't seen the kookaburras that one day on bachelor country, I don't know if I would still be here in the walking world. This is what I'm thinking when I think about walking on the floor, in here, in this room, my feet connecting with the ground. And when I see my image reflected up at me, I think about facing the ancestors the people from this place who came before us, and I am thinking about facing my own ancestors. I am working every day to make them proud. I am trying to unpick what country is saying. What does it mean when the wind plays in my hair and dries the tears on my cheeks? What is happening when the tree that I nurtured from the seedling is now taller than me and reaches its branches down to wipe them gently across my face? Who looked at the lily pilly I planted for my Archie when he died and knew I would break if the tree died too, bringing it back from the edge so I now have a spot to go, a place to put my grief where I know Kookaburra and Kingfisher, Magpie and Galah and Lorikeet and Cockatoo, Bottlebrush, Frangipani, Westeringa, Melaleuca, wind and sky and star and dirt and rock and ant and bug and all country are watching. My niece tells me about Kim the Kookaburra. She opens her curtains in the morning and Kim is in the tree looking at her. She draws me a picture of the Kookaburra and gives it to me in an envelope with my address written on it in her six-year-old handwriting. I try not to cry as I look at the drawing and think about Kim, who is keeping an eye on my niece, who is probably an ancestor, maybe even her cousin, 
who was not meant to play Barbies with her in the bedroom, but instead to keep an eye on her from the outside. My neighbours bring their dogs to visit. One of them, Snowy, looks for Archie. It doesn't matter how many times he comes to my house, runs around my yard and Archie doesn't come, he keeps looking. I am dying, desperate to know if there is a trace of somewhere Archie here that I can't see or smell, which is probably more likely. When he first died, I didn't vacuum for six weeks. Crumbs fell to the floor in places where he would have licked them away. Clumps of white dog hair blew across the floorboards like tumbleweeds, and every single one of them was precious. I made my mum take away my old mattress protector that had a permanent indentation on his side of the bed. Sorry. I spent nights there with him away before, and I knew that my legs would seek out that spot, as though it was my grief and my legs were a stick, and then I kept poking, poking, poking. The crumbs sticking to my bare feet bothers me, and I can't stop thinking about the way my mum, my nan, and my sister furiously vacuum and mop their floors for even the tiniest crumb. Until Archie died, this was me too. The inherited threat that had turned to fear of judgment by the time it got to me and my sister, but had begun with great Nana Muriel as fear of the gubbers taking away the babies. I sweep the crumbs from my feet before I go to bed at night. I ain't got no babies to take, I think. On Saturday, I visit my sister and her family. I crack open their gate and enter their house via the toy strewn lounge room. Nephew sees me first and screams, Aunt Mel, Aunt Mel. And as soon as I'm in the door, he's got a toy in his hand and a story to tell me. Their dog, a boisterous 10-month-old German Shepherd, bounds in next and knocks our bodies around while my niece runs in. Auntie Mel, Auntie Mel. I take my shoes off and no crumbs stick to my feet, but my sister apologises for the mess, for the unclean floors, which are cleaner than mine. She makes me a cup of tea and nephew comes to me for a cuddle. I pick him up and he wraps his little limbs around me. He leans back to look at me and touches my necklace with his soft, tiny fingers. Archie's poor, he says, examining the round charm at my throat. You miss him, he says. My eyes fill with tears and I squeeze his body tight as though touch can fill him with all my hope for the future. Niece hates to be left out and launches herself at my legs. So I collapse back on the couch with the two loves of my life, the future, wrapped around me, giggling, tickling, loving. Outside in the tree, Kim is watching and I think she is smiling too. Thank you. <laughs>